in the book of Revelation. This is part five of the series we've been doing. If you've not been here, Revelation is a weird book to just jump right in the deep end with. But we're in the part of the book that deals with judgment, which is the part of church, the part of religion that makes people feel a little bit nervous. It makes people squirm in their seats. Like, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to feel judged. I don't want someone to tell me all the things that I'm doing wrong or have done wrong. That's not, that's not what I'm about. And so I think we think that we're uncomfortable around judgment. But the truth is, Americans love judgment. We love it. We love judging people. That's like our favorite pastime. I love going to the state fair and I call it people watching, but it's people judging. That's what it is. Like, wow, they left the house wearing that this morning. That's unbelievable. That's, it's people judging. I enjoy the superhero movies, the Marvel movies, and the very first Avengers movie, the, the moment in the movie that got the biggest crowd applause was this moment when Loki, the god of mischief, he's talking to the Hulk. He says, enough, I am a god. And then the Hulk just takes him and throws him around like a rag doll and then walks away and says, puny God. And the crowd clapped, they erupted, they loved that moment where this guy that had stirred up so much trouble and turmoil finally got what was coming to him. He was put in his place and the crowd loved it. We may think we're uncomfortable with judgment. We may think we don't like judging people, but we love it. We love to judge people. We love that the bad guy gets what's coming to him. When our family was involved in the foster care system, we would constantly meet these social workers who on a moment's notice had to wade into the very worst situations you can imagine. Just these instances of abuse and neglect and they had to go rescue these children and try to bring them out of that. Families that were devastated by, in the situation we were involved in, families that were devastated by drug addiction. They just could not get over that. They just didn't have any, any resources. They didn't have any role models to help them move past that and they eventually lost their kids. And uh, you feel angry that these babies are abused and neglected. But if you could rewind in time to the moment when that mother or father was, was young and vulnerable themselves, and you could see the moment when someone came into their lives and offered them this out through drugs or alcohol, you would be so angry at that person who looked at this, this hurting, vulnerable human, saw that they were in need, and instead of lending a hand, they pushed them over the edge by getting them involved in something dark and ugly. You would be so angry at that person. And then you find out that the people who offered that person drugs or alcohol themselves were victims and they were abused. And you just see this, this generational cycle of human misery. We, we we talked about this a few few weeks ago, but to love someone, to truly deeply love someone, it requires being angry. It requires anger. It requires anger at the things that threaten them. It, it requires judgment. We talked this, about this a little bit last week. We talked about the beasts and the evil woman and the dragon and the animating force behind human evil. I mean, humans are bad enough. We don't need a lot of help, but the Bible says there's this entity behind it all that is looking at weak, vulnerable humans, and instead of wanting to rescue us, they're wanting, it's wanting to cause chaos and destruction and putting us over the edge. 
And I think we're aware, we're all aware of deep ugliness and evil in the world, but usually it's from a distance, right? It's through the news. We read a news article, and there's a lot of times where I'm like, ooh, this is getting too heavy, and I'll just scroll right on by. I don't want to watch this. This is too heavy. So I get to engage with human ugliness often from a distance. But if you lived in the first century, a lot of that ugliness was very present. Some of you have heard about the Roman practice of exposure. So if you didn't want a child, there wasn't a foster care system. You just took that baby and you put it outside of the city. There was usually designated spots where you could just abandon children outside of the city. The Roman emperor Caligula famously uh, asked that his newborn daughter be exposed naked so that it would reduce her chances of survival. I mean, that's human ugliness. That's dark. And you can imagine that if you were living in the first century and this darkness was very present to you, if you heard a message that at some point in the future everything was going to be set right, you would welcome judgment. You would welcome a God who looked at human suffering and misery and said, I will bring justice. It's modern Americans who get a little nervous about judgment because they don't understand that judgment is part of justice. Judgment of evil would be hopeful to someone in the first century. I want you to look at Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to look at verse 1. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. Because I just want us to be in a mindset where we can relate to what it would feel like to know that there's evil in the world, but that there's a solution, that there's an answer, that things will be made right. I want us to feel that and then feel what this message would have felt like to the first century Christians. Chapter 20, verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now we read that and we're like, okay. I think the first century audience would have heard that read in their churches and they would have applauded. They would have, they would have thought, are you serious? This evil that we see all around us, that God's going to do something about it, that this angel is going to grab the dragon by the scruff of the neck and he's going to throw him down and he's going to lock him up. I love that. I think they would have loved that. I think we're a little nervous with judgment because we don't actually experience the tremendous darkness of the world, or at least we often do from a distance. It's the moment, this moment in Revelation 20 verse 1 of 2 is the moment when Hulk grabs Loki and smashes him around. And John doesn't want us to miss exactly what's going on. He says he sees the dragon, and then John's like, I'm going to interpret this for you right here because I know Revelation is confusing enough. So this is the dragon. This is the ancient serpent. This is the devil. This is Satan. He names him four different times so we don't miss exactly what's happening here. And he bound him for a thousand years. And then the audience cheered. Verse 3. This part starts to raise some questions. He threw him into the abyss. And he locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Now you read that and you're like, wait a second, I don't, <laughs> why? I mean, we've got the bad guy locked up. Why in the world do we need to set him free for a short time? Verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated uh, those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or had its image and not received its mark on their foreheads and hands. Remember, we talked about that last week. It says, they came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. 
Verse 6, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That cleared it right up. Yeah, totally get it, right? I read that. Totally makes sense. We could just move on. No, what? All right, some people were headed and then they were raised, but other people weren't raised and there was a thousand years and like, what in the world is going on? Now, this little passage of Revelation that I just read is probably the most controversial passage in the whole book of Revelation because it most exemplifies the different approaches that people have when they read it. Now, there are lots of ways to read this letter, but this passage really highlights the differences. So here's what I want to do in this, in this sermon this morning. I want to give us a handful of things that help shape our understanding of what's happening. It's confusing, I get that, but some things that will shape our understanding. And then I want to explore the main point that gets overlooked when you talk about the controversies. And that main point is so exciting that I'm a little nervous this morning that I'm not going to convey how exciting it is. And then we're going to end the, the sermon with a verse from 2 Kings, because 2 Kings, of course, why, of course that fits in the book of Revelation, right? You'll see how it does. Since 1909, the most popular way to understand this section of Revelation is to take it literally, meaning that there are people who believe that Jesus will ascend from wherever he is, and he will come to earth, and he will literally establish a kingdom. And when I say kingdom, I mean he's going to have like a department of education and a department of transportation, and there's going to be a heavenly DMV. I actually thought it would be kind of interesting. Is there anything online that has like a license plate or a driver's license? There's a church in Oregon that will issue you a license from the kingdom of heaven. And I was reading their website. It was kind of funny. They're like, you might get pulled over, and there are some authorities who don't recognize this, but you know, just press on. And I'm like, you're asking for trouble. The funniest thing, you cannot read this. I, I think the funniest thing is this driver's license says kingdom of heaven. Uh, and the reason you know it's false is because it lists his weight as 137 pounds. <laughs> so I'm like, either gravity's different in the kingdom of heaven or something's going on there. But anyway, that's one really popular way of reading this passage, that there will literally be a kingdom. Like, you will get your driver's license validated by some bureaucratic authority that works for Jesus. Like, he'll literally be here for 1,000 years. Now, I, I think we've told you all along, you cannot read the book of Revelation that way. So there's no reason to start in chapter 20 reading it that way, because how we read this book is as important as what we read. The approach that exemplifies this very literal take on it is the approach that's been turned into the fictional series sold millions of copies. By the way, I'm all for Jesus running the DMV. I've been there and it best represents the other place. But I don't, I don't subscribe to that view. So let's talk about this. A thousand years, we're reading about a thousand years. There's gonna be a thousand year kingdom. What is that all about? Remember, numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic. Our Western modern minds struggle with understanding how a number could be symbolic, but it's true. You use numbers symbolically occasionally too. But in the Bible, numbers were symbolic. A thousand years is very symbolic for this almost infinite amount of time. This is a big number. A thousand is a big number. Exodus and Deuteronomy, God says, I will show my love to a thousand generations. Do you think God was saying, all right, we're 999, 1,000, I'm done? Or is he saying, you cannot conceive of how, how far my love will go? Or when David poetically describes God as owning the cattle on a thousand hills, 
That was an ancient way of describing wealth. It wasn't that God stopped owning the cattle on a thousand and one. It was just a way to describe this infinite vastness. David's saying, God doesn't need anything from us. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Or like uh, Second Peter, where Peter says, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. A lot of people love to turn that into a formula. Like, oh, see, this is how this, you plug this formula. It's not what it is. He's just saying time is different for God. So first of all, understand that this is, this is not literal. This is God describing there's going to be a period of time where God's in charge and Satan is restrained. But look at what he talks about, first resurrection, second death. Why would he use the adjective first resurrection and second death? Again, lots of symbolism. John earlier in his gospel in chapter 5 verse 24 says, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. The first resurrection, your body will die. There will be a second resurrection, but the first resurrection is when you enter into a life-giving relationship with Christ. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, where Paul says, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. So we're resurrected and we're reigning now. That's, all right, it's good. But what about this Satan being thrown and locked and sealed? Because doesn't it seem like there's some bad stuff in the world? I mean, you know, even if you're somebody who's on the fence and you're not sure that you believe in all this stuff, Satan, I don't know, angels, I don't know about that. But it does seem like the world is bad. So what does it mean that Satan has been sealed? It doesn't seem like that that's true. Well, John, again, in his gospel, chapter 12, verse 31 Jesus spoke, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Meaning that there's something about now that is different than it used to be. Even better than it used to be. Is there still a lot of evil and darkness in the world? Yes. But there's something about now where the, the prince of this world will be driven out. I think John is telling us that right now, this moment in which we live, you and I exist, we have an enemy that is incapable of stopping the forward movement of the church. Now, so this is the part where I was worried you weren't going to get as excited as I'm about to get. <laughs> Meaning, if we're reading Revelation correctly, that we have an enemy who will want to, who will try, who will attempt, but is incapable of stopping the forward movement of the church. Now, my entire life, the religious narrative that I have grown up with, that the world around us is becoming increasingly secular and hostile to Christianity. We are threatened on all sides there's fewer and fewer true Christians. There's maybe just me and you, and I'm not sure about you. And we have to hold on and hold out till the bitter end. And that seems self-evident, right? If you just look at the world around you, the more, more and more bizarre and messed up things in our culture are becoming the norm. You look around you and it's just like, what in the world? I mean, the, the world is so different. Back in 1952, I was not alive, but back in 1952, they could not say the word pregnant on the I Love Lucy show. They couldn't say it. Why? It was too scandalous. Now, 
You're sitting with your kids watching a kids TV show and you're like, wait, what did they just say? What a, I don't think I'm ready to have that conversation with my four-year-old. I think this is funny where they were talking about Lucy being pregnant. They actually brought in a rabbi, they brought in a priest and they brought in a minister. It sounds like a setup for a joke, but they had to get script approval from those guys before they could do this episode about Lucy being pregnant. And of course, famously, Desi and Lucy slept in separate beds like that because you couldn't show them being in the same bed. Even though they're on a fake set, even though they're a fake couple, even though they were married in real life. 1952, things have changed a little bit. Now you're watching a kid's show and you're like, oh boy, okay, I think we're just gonna watch something else. Even non-Christians have assumed that Christianity was fading. As the world becomes more modern, educated, there's just less need for religion. We just don't need it, that's superstitious, right? Sam Harris, kind of a famous atheist, wrote a book in 2004 called The End of Faith and the Future of Reason. Statistics tell this story, right? Only three in 10 uh, Americans attend church. In 2012, there was a study um, where people who self-identified as unaffiliated with a religion was on the increase. In fact, it was the fastest growing religious movement. I hear this in church leadership circles all the time. And I, I've said it, I've thought it. Why can't today be more like the book of Acts? You know, on that first day, Peter preached that sermon and how many people were converted that first day? You guys know, come on, Bible school. How many people were baptized? 3,000, wouldn't that be awesome? It'd be so cool, go to church and there's just 3,000 people being baptized. That would be amazing. Why can't it be like that today? And I've heard this a lot too, the church is only one generation from extinction. Just one generation. Well, the dumb thing about that is everything's one generation from extinction, you know. You, you eliminate the human population and everything, you know. Walmart's one generation from extinction. I don't know what that means, but I understand what they're getting at. They're like, we have to spread the message. We have to raise our kids right, and all those things are true. But it's coming from this place of fear and this place of dread and this place of doom, like, oh, it's almost over. Christianity is fading. It was a good run, but case closed. We're done. We happy few, we band of brothers. We're gonna go out in the blaze of glory. This message rings true, and this message of doom has a grip on lots of Christians. Now, I, I, like I said, this is the part I'm a little nervous about. Pew Research is an organization that does statistics, and they did this huge, unprecedented, never been done before global study of religion. And they just every factor that you could possibly imagine, and they just threw it in this thing. And I know it's so exciting, like, ooh, come to church, here's some statistics, that's great, thanks Patrick. But I'm telling you, every time I was working on this, every time I was reading it, I would just get more and more excited, and I'd be like, oh man, I hope, I hope I can communicate what good news this is. So here we go, you ready? We'll, we'll try to make this brief. The growth of Christianity is actually outpacing population growth. It's outpacing population growth. So have all the babies you want, there's still more Christians being converted. Globally, you know, people who say, I'm just not really part of any organized religion, just not for me. Uh, that is happening here in the United States because who knows, we got some weird thing going on in our culture. Globally, that's not happening. The unaffiliated is actually shrinking 
if you take the whole world into account. We just like to take our little neck of the woods into the account. But if you actually look at the whole world, and it seems like God has the whole world in his hands, things are a very different picture than if you look at, you know, suburban Minnesota. Now, places where Christianity is most directly threatened, it's most growing. The fastest growing religion in Iran is Christianity. Christianity! I mean, I don't even know how they do these surveys. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? I don't know. It doesn't seem like a great place to do that. They're pretty sure they're undercounting in places like Afghanistan. Because I don't think people want to get on the survey and be like, yep, check the box. Afghanistan, Pakistan. So they don't even feel like they've got good counts in those places. But there are more Christians in Africa than any other continent. And it's the fastest growing. China is kind of interesting because it's a little bit of a black hole of information. But here's the conservative estimates from 2010. Think that there's about 68 million people in China who claim the name of Christ. 68 million. But the trends are that it's spreading so fast that there could be more Christians in China than the U.S. by 2030. And if the trends keep going, and who knows, it could be a a Christian majority country by 2050. Christian majority country. See, people get all into the politics and like, what are we going to do about China? What are we going to do about tariffs? What are we going to do about imports? Who cares about that stuff? What are we going to do about the lost? What are we going to do about the church growing? What are we going to do about God doing things in this world? I don't care about that garbage. I know some of you are like, hey, that's my whole industry. That's what I do nine to five. I don't care about that. I care about what God is doing in the world. And it looks like God is up to something. He may not be in your neck of the woods, but that may be on you, actually. It may not be on him. Wow. See, I'm excited. I told you. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a book called Confronting Christianity. And I know the title might sound off-putting, but it's a great book. I uh, wholly recommend it. But she wrote that Christianity is the largest, most multiracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural movement in all of history, all of human history. It represents the most even racial and cultural spread with roughly equal numbers right now of self-identifying Christians living in Europe, North America, Latin America, and Sub-Saharan Africa. But it's the global South that's on the rise. So the church isn't shrinking. It's shifting, (laughs) but it's not shrinking. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think maybe Jesus was serious when he said, I will build my church on this rock and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I think maybe he was serious. He said that when there was just a tiny little group of people. They could not have envisioned what Christianity would become today. See, here's the thing. I I mean, I'm a little annoyed because I think I was raised with another lie of the dragon, that the church is on its way out. Patrick, all the cool kids are leaving, buddy. I think I bought into that lie. I think a lot of Christians have bought into that lie. I think a lot of preachers have bought in and spread that lie. But I don't think that's the truth. I don't think that's a representation of what's really, truly happening in the world. Now, I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist. But there's still bad news, you pessimists, right? There's still bad news because the U.S., it's not looking good here. It's not looking good in our neighborhood. Well, yeah, it's not awesome here. It's not awesome. The major exception to the bad news, you ready for this? (laughs) The major exception to the bad news where the churches are trending downward, the major exception where they're not trending downward are churches that are in the same category of churches like ours. Churches that interact with the Bible the way that we do, churches that believe in outreach the way we do, they're an exception to the downward trend. 
I think that's good news. I think that's cool. In our category of churches, we gain more adherence than we lose. Do people leave the church sometimes? Yes. More people come. In fact, the percentage of devoutly religious Christians is going up in Europe and the U.S., not down, up. So there are some casual Christians who are walking away, but the devoutly religious, it's going up. But Patrick, we still don't see 3,000 people converted in one day. That was the book of Acts. That's what we wanted. We don't see that. You know how many people are converted annually to Christianity? 2.7 million. Do you know how many that is every day? 7,400. There is more than twice as many people being converted every single day right now in your lifetime. Why aren't we seeing God work? We are seeing God work. We're just not looking in the right places. And maybe we haven't participated in the work. We've hoped it would just happen, but we haven't gone to talk to our friends and our neighbors and our family. Some of you have because they're here this morning. That's awesome. But maybe it's a little on us. We're doing a lot of hand wringing, a lot of fingernail chewing, but maybe we've been part of the problem. Because the problem with stats is if a guy's walking west at four miles an hour, all it can assume is that he's going to keep doing that. Stats cannot account for an act of the Holy Spirit. Stats can't account for a change of heart. Stats can't account for revival. They can't account for the change that God can do in the world. Now, there's so many, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about. But let me just, let me wrap up by saying this. When we read this story of an angel with a chain coming down and grabbing Satan by the scruff of the neck and then sealing him in the abyss, I think you have to know that what God is doing in the world is alive and it is powerful and it is growing. We don't need stats. I hesitate to say this because this is zero credit to me. But you could just look around the room and you could see God at work. That's all you have to do. You don't have to know global stats about what's happening in China. You could just look around the room. There are those of you that have been attending Woodbury for 20 years and you're seeing faces that you've never seen before. You have no idea who they are. Well, get to know them, but that's a good thing. But it's not just new faces, it's transformed lives. It's peoples whose lives were headed one direction, and now they're going a different direction. And if you would spend some time with people, you would know that too, and maybe you wouldn't be so depressed, right? There's wonderful things happening. There are stories of changed lives right in the seats around you. I'm going to wrap up with a verse out of 2 Kings. Let me set up this story. There's a city of God. It's surrounded by the bad guys. Things look bleak. They have a bigger army. They have better weapons. Things look bad. The citizens are terrified. But there's this prophet, Elisha, and he's just totally relaxed. He's just taking a stroll on the perimeter of the city walls, sipping his tea. His heart rate is not elevated. He just doesn't seem nervous about any of this. And Elisha's servant says, this is Patrick's paraphrase, hey, if there's a time for panic, it's now. If there's a time for worry, it's now. If there's a time for anxiety, it's now. You should not be so calm and relaxed, Elisha. Elisha prays, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And he looked and he saw the hills of horses and chariots of fire. And the servant knew, oh, 
Not only are the people of God not in trouble, but the enemies of God are doomed. That message is true right now. Not only are the people of God not in trouble. Do you need to be more committed to your walk with Christ? Yes, am I saying no? Yeah, of course. Do you need to share the truth of Jesus? Yes. But not only are the people of God not in trouble, it's the enemies of God that are doomed. This is so good. But I just want us to know, I want us to maybe bask in the reflected glory of God doing a great work in the world that we get to be part of. We get to be part of that. Isn't that good? And you have to believe that. You have to believe that through Jesus Christ, you have power over temptation. You have power over sin. That you can make choices better than maybe what you're making. You can repent and you can live a new life. It's such a beautiful truth and such a beautiful message. I hope you feel that.